Good afternoon, everyone. I know that um, got, we're starting about five minutes off, so bear with me. I, uh, I get excited because excellence is a beautiful topic, especially this presentation. We're going to look at the heart of excellence. What is the heart of excellence? Because we've talked about the need for excellence, the fact that from our creation, God expects us to be excellent. Then we looked at what does it actually mean to be excellent? It just means to give 100% to everything we do. It means to sit down and say, Lord, I'm making up my mind. From this day forward, I'm going to be a hundred percenter. I don't care if there's 50 percenters. I don't care if there's 80 percenters. I don't care if there's 90 percenters around me. I'm going to be a hundred percenter. Everything that I do. And this will radically, radically change. Not just necessarily the outcomes in our lives. But this has to do with us fulfilling the purpose in our creation. It has us receiving the likeness of Jesus appreciating the sacrifice that he gave. We looked at that last seminar as well. That when God gave Jesus, he gave us how much? All. Everything is in Jesus. The beauty of the stars, the universe, everything. It's captivated our minds. And so with that being said, now we want to assess what is the heart of excellence? What is it that spurs a person on to excellence? Is it enough to say that, okay, I did well, I have straight A's and all these different things. Is that enough? Is it enough to say that there is no one beyond you? Is that when we know I've achieved excellence? So we're going to look at that this afternoon. With that, before we do that, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer together. And we will start our seminar. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this last presentation. Lord, it is so encouraging to know that excellence, while it is not an option, it is not something that we have ourselves to produce. But we can come to Jesus just as we are. And Jesus will give us the heart of excellence. Bless us now as we study, Lord. Give us wisdom. We pray for the Holy Spirit that he will guide us into all truth. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, just a a quote real quick. We looked at this before. Higher than the highest human thought can reach is God's ideal for his children. Godliness, godlikeness is the goal to be reached. We've heard this statement a hundred times, right? Yes, maybe, maybe not. You say, no, I never heard this before. If you never heard it before, again, can we shut the doors back there? Okay. So in education, she said, what is God thinking when he's talking about going to school? And in the book Education, we're told that what God is thinking is higher than the highest human thought can reach. It is God's ideal for his children. Godliness, God-likeness. So we looked at one aspect of God's godliness or God-likeness is the fact that he's a hundred percenter. God gives all to everything that he does. So he says, if I'm going to save men, he gives all. He gave everything in Christ and he gave Jesus to us forever. So God is not just a one-time 100%er. He's a continuous 100%er. He says, look, I gave you Jesus for eternity. He shall ever retain the human form. Can you imagine you go see Jesus and there are angels who knew Jesus before he had his human form? Every time they look at him, they will remember the gift and the love of God. Because he'll never, ever look how he used to look. For you and for me. How earnestly does God want to restore us back to being excellent? The fact that he was willing to give his only beloved son should speak to us volumes of how deep and earnest is God's desire to return us back to excellence. To be 100 percenters in everything that we do and to always excel from glory to glory. Higher than the highest human thought can reach. Notice the statement from William Ward. He says, flatter me and I may not believe you. (laughs) Criticize me and I may not like you. Ignore me and I may not forgive you. Encourage me and I will not forget you. Love me and I may be forced to love you. All these different things he gives us response, but he says, flatter does not return flatter. (laughs) Criticism does not return criticism. (laughs) He says, uh, he says, if you ignore me, I may forgive you. It doesn't necessarily return ignoring. 
Encouragement doesn't always necessarily return encouragement, but love begets itself. When you love someone, they want to love you back. If I ignore you, you know, we'll say like, man, this girl's ignoring me, I'm going to ignore her too. Isn't that how we operate? Eye for eye, tooth for a tooth, right? You go to the store and you say, a person criticized me, we make sure we criticize them. Man, I don't know, that, that seminar you gave, man, was, eh, it's kind of slow in the beginning. I wasn't really following you. You were kind of all over the place. You're sitting there listening like, well, you know, do you think you could do better? Some of our criticism never leaves our lips, right? It stays up here. But God heard it. Angels recorded it. Somebody ignores me, like we said, I'll ignore you. Somebody flatters me. The interesting thing about flattery and why this statement is so funny, he says, flatter me and I may not believe you. Is because, did you know that if you flatter someone and it's not even true, they won't necessarily turn away the praise. The only time we have issues with flattery and praise is when it's given to someone else. So someone comes to me and say, man, you're the best preacher in the whole state of Tennessee. There's no better preacher than you, right? Someone, someone comes up to me after this seminar. And we'll try to be humble. Oh, no, man, calm down, bro. Calm down, you know. Chill out. There's a whole bunch of good preachers in Tennessee, man. There's all kind of powerful preachers here. Da, 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 da. We'll, we'll try to do this, but in our hearts, <laughs> it's swelling. Amen? Am I talking to myself? <laughs> We're swelling. Some brother comes up to you, and this is how girls fall into mess, you know? You walk in, some brother, you're the most beautiful girl I've ever seen in my life. No, I'll be whatever, whatever, I'm not. The, but in her heart, swelling. <laughs> She's thinking about you <laughs> when you leave. And every time she sees you, that's the brother who walked up to me and, and told me that I was the most beautiful girl that he ever seen. But he, William Ward is, is Arthur Ward is here, he's, um, Bringing us this subtle thing to say that there's something about love that draws itself out of someone else. That's the interesting thing. It has a strong power to bring reciprocity. There's no culture I've found where the most loving people in the culture are treated the worst. Never found that. When you say, man, you go to their culture and the person who is the most unselfish in the culture, everyone's treating badly. Haven't found it. You go to a society, you go to a group, you go to a social group, the person who is the most servant of everyone there is actually the last person that people, everyone's quick to defend that person. Yo, man, she kind of gets on my nerves, but all that person's thinking when you say that to them is this person takes care of me. Be careful what you say. That's why we're, we're really big about our moms, right? You know, I grew up in Chicago. You're saying your mama, I mean, that was like instant fight, you know? <laughs> your mama. <laughs> the punches are launched. <laughs> World War III, man. It's like... So, so as we go, I want to start with this statement, and then I'm going to go into our Bible study. She says this, The life and spirit of who? Christ is the only standard of what? Excellence. <laughs> you want to know what the standard is? The life and the what? Spirit of Christ. You see, it's not enough to mock the very actions that Jesus did. you got to have His same spirit. Are you following me? What are the motives? What compels you? What urges us on to live in those ways? You see, you can outwardly do the things that Jesus does, right? Like in the sense of imitating. So I can literally walk in the steps that Jesus walked. Jesus ate fish right here by the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. I grabbed fish and do the same thing Jesus did. Then Jesus stood up on the temple and read Isaiah 61. So I go to the very same synagogue at the very same pulpit at the same time of day that Jesus read this text from Isaiah 61. Will this make me like Jesus? There's a book that's out today. It's one of the bestsellers um, I saw at the airport at Chattanooga. And um, no, I'm sorry, it was in Memphis, the Memphis airport. And it's a book called The Literal Christian. You guys ever heard of it? It's basically this guy who basically did a year that he did everything in the Bible, literally. He lived a year. Whatever the Bible said, he literally did it. Gave up all things to the poor, all this other stuff. He, this is, and he recorded it in a book. And it's this popular book that everyone's like, see how stupid these people are interpreting the Bible as if it's literally meaning this and literally meaning that. And it's belittling Christianity. In the same sense, 
Many of us are literalists in the sense of following Jesus. But the question is, you cannot fake motives. You cannot fake <laughs> the spirit of Jesus. You can't fake that. And here's the, here's, the, here's the deeper thing to this lesson. When you think of a hypocrite and the concept of hypocrisy, I want you to follow this because actually I should probably il illustrate this on the board. But when you think of a hypocrite, a hypocrite in the word, in the Greek, it's hypocrites, which means an actor. That's what the word hypocrite means. It means an actor. Hypocrites. <laughs> so what happens is a hypocrite, when you think of a person who's a hypocrite, do they, well actually let's, let's say this, a hypocrite is a person who pretends to be something that they're not, right? That's where we get the concept of an actor. So I get up, I used to be in theater before I knew Jesus, we have, okay I'm gonna act like, you know I did this scene where it was like I was playing the disease syphilis and the other character was playing gonorrhea and we were interacting in the scene. So I'm faking as if I'm a disease. So here it is, I'm acting, but I'm not the actual disease, correct? Are you with me? I'm not syphilis, okay? <laughs> so you have, this, you have this concept where it says, look, an actor pretending to be something that they're not. Now, when we think of hypocrisy in the church and in general life, how many people are acting like hypocritical murderers? You ever met a person like that? I'm a murderer. <laughs> I kill people. <laughs> Is this <laughs> like... How many of us are like, yo, man, you're such a hypocrite. You're not a real murderer. <laughs> Do you notice that? No one pretends to be a serial killer <laughs> or a child abuser. I'm crazy, man. I'm crazy. <laughs> How long do you think they will remain on the street? <laughs> not very long. Say, hey, man, there's some killings going on in this area. Pick that brother up. <laughs> Pick that brother up. <laughs> So in the same sense, there's no way that you says no one pretends to be a murderer. They, anything that they pretend to do tends to be things of virtue. Isn't that true? If I'm going to be a hypocrite, the hypocrite gives value to that which they pretend to be. See, they see that there's value in being unselfish. There's value in being spiritual, right? There's value in getting up before everybody else in the house and act like you're reading your Bible in the morning. But you're not really communing with God. Because in other people's eyes, it's valuable to see you doing that. It's valuable to be that first person in Sabbath school at church. Yep, I'm here. I was here since 930. We'll be quick to let somebody know when they're talking about time and stuff. Man, these people. Hey, bro, you came here. I was here since 925. I opened the church. <laughs> we want to make sure people know. <laughs> But all of this is to simply say there's virtue and what is, why is that deacon, why is that person so big on saying I'm the person that opened the church? Because he's saying that in other people's eyes there's a certain value in being early at church. So therefore I'm going to pretend to be that zealous spiritual person. I'm serious about church. I'm serious about my relationship with Jesus. I get to church early. I'm having prayer meeting before church on Sabbath morning. And there are people like that. So when a person is acting as a hypocrite, they are giving value. They're saying, look, there's something valuable in living this way. There's something valuable in living this way. So when we mock the actions of Jesus, we're saying there's value in doing these things. But the thing that you cannot fake is the spirit. You can't fake that. I may be able to sit down and even repeat the very words that Jesus said in the Bible but I can't fake his spirit. Only God can produce in me. Only God can produce in me. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Are we there? Okay. I'm going to pause this presentation for a second. Matthew chapter 5. Someone read verses 43 to 48. For us. Anyone? Keep going. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Yes. Keep going. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends his rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, 
What reward do you have? Not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brethren only, what should you do more than others? Not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just mm -hmm. as your Father in heaven is Now, follow this. The end of the text says we have to be what? Perfect? According to whose standard of perfection? God, right? Now, I want you to follow this text. You have heard that it has been said that you should love your neighbor and do what to your enemy? Hate your enemy. But I say unto you, what do you do with your enemies? Do good to those who do what? Hate you? Pray for those who persecute you? Really? Now, he gives us that verse to say, okay, I want you to love your enemies, not just your neighbors. So now, what does that basically mean? Is he saying, love how many people? Everybody, right? Neighbor or enemy. It don't matter. You're supposed to love them. Then he goes and he says, now do good to them who hate you. Now, are you supposed to do good to people who love you? So do good to how many people? Okay. Pray for those who persecute you. Only for the people who persecute you? Or for everybody? Pray for everybody. Are you following the pattern now? <laughs> He's overcoming the concept that love only belongs to a certain group of people. Jesus is establishing that love belongs to all. Yeah, we're going to come to that. Love belongs to how many people? All. Every single person, living creature, you know God says love belongs to them. I don't care what their intentions are towards you. That's irrelevant. I don't care what they have done to you. Persecuted is past tense. Doesn't matter what they've done to you. Love belongs to them too. I don't care what their intentions are to do to you. Love belongs to them too. Now notice the next verse. Someone read the next verse. How does it start? Anyone? Chapter 6 verse 1. No, we're in chapter 5. Chapter 5, we just read 43, 44. What's the next verse? Chapter 5, verse 45. Right, so I'm saying read verse 45 again. Matthew chapter 5. All right, now let's pause there. He says, that you might be the children of your Father which is in heaven. So did you follow his thinking here? He's saying... Love your enemies. Then he breaks that down. What does that mean? Then he says, that you may be. So if you want to be a child of your father in heaven, what do you have to do? Love your enemies. So what is the greatest evidence that you are the child of God? Loving your enemies. Love is what makes you a child of God, but a certain kind. A love that is unconditional. And then he goes into the explanation, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. Then he says, for God maketh his son to fall on who? How many people? Everyone, right? The just and the unjust. Can you imagine if you were walking around and you knew a person was unjust because it was cloudy over them. It was sunny over you. So you wake up, clouds, oh, and I'm blessed. <laughs> and we walk around if God was partial so the very fact that Jesus says look blessings are not a test of evidence that you are a child of God rain trials are not a test that you are a child of God all these things do not give evidence that you or I are children of our heavenly father the evidence is in the spirit which is love if you love unconditionally then you are a child of the heavenly father now, let's go ahead and cement this with 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to do what we might call an exegetical study, but it ain't going to be too intellectual. Don't worry. I know that sounded like a really boring word. Exa what? <laughs> now, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Are you guys there? Now, I want to show you something very interesting. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the last verse this is what Paul says he says um, 
I'm sorry, beginning in verse 29, he says, Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, have all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but covet earnestly the best gifts, yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Now here's the interesting thing. Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about spirituality. <laughs> and he's saying, look, everyone is not an apostle. <laughs> everyone is not a prophet. <laughs> everyone does not speak with diverse kinds of tongues. Everyone doesn't interpret. Everyone doesn't have the gifts of healings. Everyone doesn't work miracles. But covet earnestly the best gifts, yet I'm going to show you a more excellent way. That word more excellent is the word bole in the Greek. Can you say that with me? bole. Now, hooper means over. What does it mean? Over, to go beyond. And the word bole means to throw something. So if you're hooperbole, then you are thrown beyond everything else. So he just talked about all the different spiritual gifts of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, yet I'm going to show you a more excellent way. You're talking about fulfilling the ministry. You're talking about the body of Christ. I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And the word hooperbole, does that sound like any word we have in English? Hyperbole, hyperbole right? What is a Hyperbole. Isn't that what hyperboles do? Go way beyond? <laughs> Amen? I mean, does somebody know what I'm talking about? You guys know a person who likes to exaggerate your stories? You'd be like, oh, yeah, you kind of like <laughs> nicked your finger in the door, and the person's like, oh, man, she got off the car. Bam! Ah! She fell down. And everyone's like, come on, why are you exaggerating? <laughs> My mother is probably the princess or queen of exaggeration. My sister despises it. Anything that happens in the house, when neighbors come over or friends, my mom just tells the story. I mean, you thought it was like the Canterbury Tales or like Lord of the Rings or something. You're like, yo, is this on Broadway? <laughs> like, how in the world? We're like, ma, how did you get this out of this? Like, this, we weren't even there. <laughs> no, I was there. I was there. My mom will argue us down. We're like, ma, you always exaggerate the story. <laughs> so Paul is saying, I'm going to show you an exaggeration so notice the language of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not what? Now follow this. We're going to do a chart that Paul sets up. So the word though is a word of exaggeration, isn't it? Think about it. You guys zoning in? Think about this. If I said, though you are the last woman on earth, and I was single, I wouldn't marry you. I don't really mean that. <laughs> I'm sorry this is on recording, and I won't say your name. <laughs> but do you understand how that exaggeration came? I'm saying though, meaning if the circumstances were this way. I'm not saying that they are this way, right? But if the circumstances were such a case that you were the only woman on earth and I was still single and the human race was going to die out if we don't get married and have children, I still wouldn't marry you. Now, does that reveal some hatred? <laughs> Amen? <laughs> so Paul says here, look, he says, though, meaning he's using an exaggeration. Another phrase would be, even if, right? Even if I had to walk 10 miles home, I wouldn't ride home in your busted Honda. <laughs> <laughs> I hate foreign cars. Whatever. <laughs> so the same concept is Paul is exaggerating. He's saying, look, though I had, what does he say in the first verse? If he had what? Tongues of men and of angels, right? So, though he had, and though he have not. So, he's repeating this phrase throughout the passage. So, he says, though I had what? Tongues, but I didn't have what? Love, right? Or charity. What does that equal? What does that equal? Sounding brass, right? Tinkling cymbal. You're just noise. So the gift of tongues without love is noise. Go to verse 2. Though I had the gift of prophecy and understood how many mysteries? All, All mysteries, right? So here, we put prophecy on this side. And he has all mysteries. What else does he have? All knowledge, right? Then he has how much faith? all faith right and what did he have not what does that equal zero 
Are you following Paul's logic? You see his exaggeration? Yes? Let's do the third verse. What do you have? What do you do? Though I did what? Bestow all my gifts, right? So he says, though I bestow all my goods, so we'll say give to the poor. And though I give my body to be burned, right? Even if I gave my life. Give my life. And I don't have what? I profit how much? Zero. Now, let me ask you a question. What being in the universe has all knowledge? What being in the universe understands all mysteries? And as he goes through faith, he says that I could remove mountains. So he's dealing with the concept of power. What being in the universe has all power? If you have the knowledge of God, the power of God, and you don't have his love, you're nothing. Amen? Amen. So Paul says, all mysteries, all knowledge, all faith with no love equals zero. <laughs> this is too great of a negative. <laughs> There's some things you can go without, but love is not one of them. He says, I am nothing. Your value is in proportion to the amount of love you have. But notice the word here in the Greek is agape. <laughs> God's love. It's not phileo, that's brotherly love in the, in the Greek. It's not eros, that's passionate love in the Greek. It's agape. If you have all these, you could speak with tongues, great orator, whatever. You don't have love, you're noise. If you have all this knowledge, all this, you understand all mysteries, breaking down revelation, and you don't have love, zero. Even if you're going to the towers and you're bestowing all your goods to feed the poor, or you get to the point where they're now persecuting and they're going to take your life for your faith and you don't have love. He says, you gain nothing. You've lost everything. So you understand Paul's exaggeration. I'm wondering how in the world do you give all your goods to feed the poor and you don't have love? Like, that just blows my mind. <laughs> how do you give your life, your body to be burned at the stake and you don't have love? Well, Paul says, if it were possible, he's showing us the value of love. Are you following me? It is an indispensable thing to your value and my value. If we want to have meaning in life and what we do, meaning in our being, in our very individual essence, we must have love, Paul says. If that's clear, let's say amen. So, if this is what it means to have God, <laughs> right? Let's look at it again with love being the foundation and the heart of excellence. is revealing the character of God. Go back to Matthew 22. We looked at this passage last time. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34. Got 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. Okay, great. Praise God. Some of us are a little slow, but it's all right. So... Matthew 22, verse 34. Someone start reading that for us. Anyone? But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Keep going. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, tested him, saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, He shall love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. Uh-huh. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the law. Alright. You guys ever played Hangman before? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? See so how the little lines right here? You got the little dude. And then you say, wrong, okay, you could have head there, right? So Jesus says this little thing right here is loving God with all and loving neighbor equal to your love for yourself. In essence, your neighbor is yourself. <laughs> now, follow this. 
He says, on all this hangs the law and the prophets. On these two. Now notice, last session we looked at the concept of 100 percenters, right? We have to love God with how much? With all. But notice the verb. It's not just about all, it's also the motive. What are we supposed to do with all of it? Love God. Now he says, what hangs on these two principles? The law and the prophets. Now the law is the Ten Commandments. Well, actually the first five books of Moses, if we're technical to the book of Matthew. So it includes the, com the commandments, it includes the little ceremonial laws. Now follow this. Is there anything in the law that says that you can love yourself? The first four commandments deal with love to who? The second six, love to? Any commandments that relate to self-love? Isn't that interesting? So the foundation of sin is what? Selfishness. Self-centered. Self-love. So follow this now. The law reflects the what of God? What does the law reflect? The character of God, right? So follow this. Here you have the Ten Commandments. This is the mirror of God's image. And we could also say his name or his glory. They're the same thing. We looked at that in session number one. So here we see when we look into the Ten Commandments. Got to put some writing on there. <laughs> so you look into the Ten Commandments and you see the character of God, and he says these two commandments, these two tablets as they were, assuming there were four on one and six on the other, the first one would simply say, love God with everything. So the heart of what it means to have the character of God has love in it. Now the quality of that love is measured by what you give. Are you with me? So we saw in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave the lowest angel in heaven. Now if he gave you the lowest angel, that would represent what kind of love? Very little love, right? You're like, okay, yeah, just give them the weakest angel out there somewhere in Andromeda. <laughs> I don't know. Just send him. Don't send Jesus. I'm not giving them that which is most precious to me. I'm not going to give them all. But God, in John 3.16, the love is directly related to the amount in which we give. The quality. If it's deep, you give a lot. Now follow this thinking. The heart of excellence being love. If you have no love, it is not excellence. Straight A's, no love. It's not excellence. It's not love. Then it's not excellent. Because if you have all these things, remember we looked at that? And you don't have love, what does that equal? Zero. If you had the knowledge of God... <laughs> He says, if you had the power of God, the insight of God into the mysteries of the universe, and you don't have his love, you have nothing. So when it comes to the concept of excellence and saying, what is the heart of excellence? We excel in the things that we love. Isn't that true? Think about it. Give me something you guys love. Anyone. What do you love? You said what? You like Mexico? Mexican food. Okay. We love Mexican food. Now, <laughs> so when you love Mexican food, and the person says, man, I love some good Mexican food. I actually love Mexican food, too. I just had some last week. So anyway, you say you love Mexican food. Now, because we love Mexican food, we make sure that we don't do a shoddy job, right? You see a person who loves some Mexican food, they're not just hooking up any kind of avocados for that guacamole, right? Is that true? When they're making their salsa, they're not going to choose the beat-up tomatoes at the market. We're going to be like, yo, we're about to make some salsa. Like, it's got to be good salsa, right? Amen? So you're like, when we love something, we always desire the very best for it. Amen? Think about, you know, relationships, because most of you are young people. You, you think in relationships. So that's why I like to use relationships as illustrations. If we love someone, I'm not saying that you do, so don't, don't get uncomfortable. 
But let's say you love someone. Many of us may think we do love someone. So we're like, yeah, I love this person on campus. I love him. We're going to get married. <laughs> Whatever. So, <laughs> so, taking, so taking this mentality, because we love this person or we think we love them, right? When it comes to that significant other's birthday, what does that other person do? If it's your girlfriend and she knows your birthday's coming up, she's going to call into work to work extra hours? Is that what she does? No. <laughs> she was probably planning months in advance. I got to take this day off. I, have to, I can't work on his birthday. Then when your birthday comes up, she's planning all these different things for you. Now I'm saying, guys, if your girlfriend didn't do this for you, I don't, I don't know if that means she loves you or not. <laughs> but this is not a relationship seminar. That's Dr. Parker. <laughs> so the whole concept here that I'm trying to illustrate is that when an individual has this compulsion of love, we make sure that things are well. You're not going to just let him say, yeah, we're going to have your birthday party in my basement. It's not finished. Concrete, cobwebs. <laughs> but hey, I love you. I threw you a party. You know, like, come on. <laughs> no one's going to say that. The love compels us to excellence. So now let me go back again to some things that I said earlier. And let's insert love back in there. So we talked about when we're doing our academic work, because we're all at an institution. We got homework every day. All the weeks, some of us, we got years of homework ahead of us. Praise God, I finished school. <laughs> so you're looking at your homework and you're like, oh man, I got to do this assignment, whatever the case may be. If you love your professor, is it reflected in your homework? If you love your professor, is it reflected in your classroom decorum? You come home, if you love your mom, is it reflected in the tidiness of your room? Is it reflected in your behavior at home and how you speak to her? Husbands and wives, same thing. Grandparents, same thing. Friends, same thing. God is not a respecter of persons. It's easy, we read in Matthew 5, to love people who love us. That is not a revelation that you have the character of God. He says the Gentiles, publicans do that. They don't even know me. But the question is, how do you respond when they don't give you that love? And as we read in that first quote of this session, if you love me, I may be forced to love you. So the fact that a person does not give me love, the response is not to not love them, but to love them. Then they may be forced to love me. Because there's no powerful force in the universe. This is what it means to have God in your life. That's it. It's not about being knowledgeable. And when we sit down and you evaluate excellence in every field of your life, you're getting up, you're making your bed, you need to be excellent in that. Why? Because you love God. And you have a desire to glorify Him. Make your bed like Jesus was making the bed. <coughs> Clean your room like Jesus was cleaning the room. If we imagine if we just applied this, how we prepare our food, how we conduct ourselves in the lunchroom, how we behave at potluck. I mean, I've gone to churches as a preacher. By the time I get to the line, that's all there is there, is the line. No food. I'm like, <laughs> no concept. Like, I'm here at my potluck to get my food. Who cares if those brothers starve? That's, that's how we conduct potluck. <laughs> like ravaging beasts. You got people leaving church early for food. <laughs> really? Would you do that to a person you loved? You're talking to someone you love. Or he's talking to you. I love my dad. He's talking to me. Dad, I'm out. You just walk out in the middle of what he's saying to you. I got, I got to go eat. <laughs> really? How in the world? So when we sit back and evaluate, every task, every role that you and I hold fall either under love to God or love to our fellow men. Isn't that right? You go to school, you have teachers. Do you love them? 
you have classmates. Many of us, we should excel just for our classmates' sake. Let me tell you a story. Back before they used to let African Americans in the military, there was a um, <clears throat> African American regime, and they said, okay, we're gonna do this test, we're gonna let them come in, try to be Navy SEALs and all these different things. Many of the African American male recruits could not read. A couple of the recruits could read. So what they did was, is that they would tell the recruits, they keep them busy exercising all day so they wouldn't have time to read over their things so they could be ready for the exam. So their friends, the other African-American male recruits, at nighttime, when the, when the commanding officers would look into the barracks, they say, okay, the lights are off, it's bedtime, make them go to bed early. So they can't study, they can't do anything, so that they would fail and therefore they would prove we can't have African-Americans in the military. So what they would do is, the commanding officer would look, the lights were off, the men would get up, take their blankets, cover the windows, turn on the lights, and tutor the recruits who could not read in the material to make sure they passed. We don't have that commitment for our fellow classmates. Only love compels a person to do that. Only love. Our love to God should compel us to know his word. Compel us. Because I love you, Lord, I want to know you. I never met a person I love that I didn't want to know more about. Never. Never met a person that if they had their diary, that I would just, oh, yeah, I'll get to it eventually. If I love the person, I want to read that stuff. I remember I used to like this girl. I used to, like, save the emails and read the emails again. <laughs> Go back. I mean, she's long gone, whatever. Go back, read the emails. I'm like, man, yeah, I remember that conversation. Save my chats and everything. Some of y'all need to admit, say amen. <laughs> like, nah, Sebastian, you're by yourself on this one. <laughs> so the whole point that I'm making is this. This is the very heart of excellence. If we just sit down and evaluate if there were a table here, you had paper, I had paper, I say, let's write down our roles. Let's write down our responsibilities and say, out of love for who do I need to excel in this area? Let this be our prayer and our assignment walking away from the seminar. What are my roles? What are my responsibilities? What have I committed to? And then coming to God and say, Lord, by your grace and out of love either for you and for whoever this person I made this commitment to, or whatever organization that they represent, out of love for them, I'm going to excel in this task. And all that means is I'm going to give all, 100%. Because the reward of excellence is no regrets. I have no regrets. We'll never do this. Let's um, look at some spirit of prophecy. Someone uh, hit the lights for me. The life and spirit of Christ is the only standard of excellence and perfection, and our only safe course is to follow his example. If we do this, he will guide us by his counsel, and afterward receive us to glory. If we strive to walk in the footsteps of our Redeemer, if we live for it and believe for it, God is willing to give us of his free spirit. And we shall, this is, she says, this is the result now. When he gives you the Holy Spirit, you shall be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, <laughs> that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's a beautiful statement. Listen to this one. At his coming, the master will call his servants and reckon with them. Those who have had an eye single to the glory of God will have the richest reward. Selfishness, indolence, worldliness, pride, covetousness, and human ambition will appear in their true and hateful character as the works of Satan. While every work, listen to this statement, while every work done from love to Jesus with a sincere desire to glorify him will appear as the height of human excellence and wisdom. Did you listen to that? I should have heard like 60 amens. She says, every work done from love to Jesus with a sincere desire to glorify him will appear as the height of human excellence. The height of human excellence. 
God says, look, when you do something, Lord, I'm going to do this homework out of love for Christ and at a desire to glorify him, to reveal his character in this work. God says that's the height of excellence. You can't go beyond. Continually to grow. God has instructed me to tell you and all his people to be very careful not to resist the working of the Holy Spirit. The comforter that Christ sends. Fear to take the first presumptuous step in resistance. When Christ spoke to the disciples of the Holy Spirit, he sought to uplift their thoughts and enlarge their expectations. Get this, to grasp the highest conception of excellence. Now follow this. She says, don't resist the Holy Spirit. When Christ spoke to the disciples of the Holy Spirit, he was seeking to uplift their thoughts to the grasp the highest conception of excellence. The Holy Spirit <laughs> is the only way that you and I can reach the highest conception of excellence. Now, you guys remember the statement in the first meeting? Every capability that God has given us, he gave to us for the development to the highest degree of excellence. That means he gave us them to be surrendered to the Spirit of God. Period. That's why he gave us to them. She says, therefore, let us strive to understand his words. Let us strive to appreciate the value of the wonderful gift he has bestowed upon us. Let us seek for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Do you know why? Do you know why the 144,000, right? Just to show you how excellence is a thing for the end times. The 144,000 stand upon the Mount Zion with the Lamb. And what do they have in their forehead? What do they have? The Father's what? Name. The Father's name. Name equals what? Glory, right? Image. And we said the very image and glory of God is excellence. The 144,000 will have excellence. Cannot ever stand with the Lamb on Mount Zion unless you have His Father's name in your mind. Fixed in your character. And the character of God is reflected in excellence. Everything. You see, excellence is not a subject just for passing. This is preparation to be a part of the 144,000. You thought the seminar was just passing by. This brother's going to try to make me do my homework better and all this other stuff. No, it's not about your homework, friends. It's not about my job or whatever else we have find ourselves engaged in. Excellence is about preparation for the end time. You're not going to make it. I'm not going to make it if we don't, ex we don't receive excellence from Christ. We will not. That's 144,000. To love him, listen to this statement. This is mind-blowing. <laughs> To love him, the infinite, the omniscient one, with the whole strength and mind and heart means the highest development of every power. When you love God with all your strength, she says, mind and heart, this means the highest development of every power. It means that in the whole being, as well as the soul, the image of God is to be restored. Is that clear? <laughs> Loving God takes us back to where God had first created us to be. Completely unselfish beings. Like the first is the second commandment. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The law of love calls for the devotion of body and mind and soul to the service of God and our fellow men. And this service, while making us a blessing to others, brings the greatest blessing to ourselves unselfishness underlies all true development. Through unselfish service, we receive the highest culture of every faculty. You cannot truly grow if you are selfish. True development only comes through unselfishness. It always springs from the heart of love. Education, page 16. I present these thoughts before the layman in the church that they may awaken to a sense of their responsibility. What are you doing, dear reader, with your entrusted talents? If you are burying them in the world, do so no longer. Work for Jesus. Put your entire interest in his cause. Self-flattery and self-deception would make you believe that you are doing about right. But how does your life compare with that of Jesus when he was in the world? Have you asked yourself that question? How does your life and my life compare with the life of Jesus when he was in the world? Jesus has done everything for you. He withheld not even himself. 
Now show zeal and earnestness in putting all your powers to work for him, and you will receive as your reward the gift of eternal life. This statement just simply forces us to reflect. Jesus came to teach us how to be excellent. And we need to compare our lives to him. He's the only standard. I want you to notice these statistics. A person is born every three seconds. <laughs> a person dies every seven. A woman is raped in South Africa every 26. And a person commits suicide every 40 seconds. Now, I want you to follow this. Someone hit the lights real quick. If we count 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, three people were born and a person died. Now, I want you to imagine this is like, this means a person is born every three seconds. We're talking like 70-something thousand people are born every year. We baptize 3,000 a year. I'm sorry, I think we're baptizing 5,000. We may have moved up. We're baptizing 5,000 a year. Seven people, a person dies every seven seconds, that's 70,000 people. Die. That's actually right. It's 150,000 people are born every year. 70,000 die every year. A woman is raped in South Africa every 26 seconds because... They believe in their culture that if you sleep with the virgin, you can get rid of your HIV. So, if a newborn baby girl is born, when I first was coming into the church, I wasn't even baptized yet. They featured an article in CNN about a newborn baby girl was raped by nine African men because they were trying to get rid of their AIDS. In South Africa alone, a woman is raped every 26 seconds. That's almost three times a minute. A person commits suicide every 40 seconds in the world. Someone in the world commits suicide every 40 seconds. Now, you know how many people attempt suicide? These people succeed every 40 seconds. It's about once every 10 or 15 a person attempts suicide somewhere in the world. And it was interesting that as we, um, you guys may have heard about the story about the woman in the apartment building in New York back in the 1960s. Her dog ate her baby. You guys heard about that story? Okay, I'm going to tell you the story then. <clears throat> a woman was living in a small town. And after she was living in the small town, she decided, you know what, everyone knows me here, you know, I'm trying to get out, get into the world. So she decided to move to beautiful New York. And so New York, back in the 1950s or 60s, they were starting to build these skyscraper apartment buildings. Thousand people per floor. Now follow this. She goes, moves into the apartment building. She has no furniture, no nothing. She just wanted to get away from home. As she goes there, within a few weeks, because there's a thousand people per floor, she's mercilessly raped in her apartment. They don't know. She tries to report it. They can't find the guy. There's no real investigation. She becomes pregnant as a result of the rape. Nine months later, she's giving birth to the child. She's on welfare. She goes to the hospital, delivers her baby. They say, look, man, we can't um, keep you overnight. The hospital's overcrowded. She says, I have no money to feed my baby. Can you just give me one more night, and I'll get my welfare check tomorrow? They said, sorry, we have no room. Goodbye. Put her in a cab. She went home with her baby. Actually, let me pause. After she was raped, she got a German shepherd for protection. That's what happened. So she comes back from the hospital with the baby, she spent eight out of the nine dollars she had for the cab fare. Went to the store to try to buy something the next day, the next morning, to get the baby food, left the baby, went there, cashed her welfare check, got food, came home and found that the dog had eaten her newborn baby because he had not been fed in a week. And when this came out in New York, everybody was shocked. They were like, this is insane. 
how in the world does this kind of suffering go on and no one knows about it? So they had a big press conference with the mayor of New York. And they said, look, as these people, different people were grilling him, and this one reporter was really pressing, he said, look, mayor, how can such grievous suffering, why is it that our hospitals are so overcrowded that a woman can't spend one night with her newborn baby in the hospital? Why is it that police records and our work is so shabby that you can't find a man who raped you and you saw his face and you had a complete description? And he can't be brought to justice. Why is it that our welfare system is so bad that people have to wait until certain days of the month to get paid? Even though they're having children and they have new dependents now. And he starts naming all these things that went wrong in her life. And the question that kept coming up was, how can so many things go wrong in one life? And the mayor's response to the reporter, he said, look, do you expect me to listen to every single cry of every New Yorker in the city of New York? Just to give you rough figures, there's about 10 million people in New York. He says, do you expect me to answer and to, and to meet every single cry and every single care that every New Yorker has? He says, look, the sound of listening to their complaints and their cries would be deafening on the other side of silence. As soon as I open the door is what he's saying. To say any New Yorker who has a problem or complaints or suffering, come to me. He says, it would be deafening on the other side of silence. I could not handle it. I cannot meet every single New Yorker's issues as the mayor. And the point that this, that this uh, theologian was making when he was giving this illustration, he says, you know what? But there is one place. There is one place in which all suffering culminates, in which all suffering can be heard. And that's in the heart of God. Every time one of those women gets raped in South Africa, God hears. And God witnesses it. Every time that person is about to take their life or does take their life, God witnesses it. And he bears the suffering. And Ellen White asks us the question in Steps to Christ. Many concern themselves with what they give up. How many of us ask, what about the suffering of God? Why not preach the gospel to end God's suffering? You think... You understand bad things are happening in the world? God witnesses every crime, whether it's brought to justice or not. He sees it. And he bears it in his heart. He bears it in his heart. Someone hit the lights. This is my concluding statement. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the, sing the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television, and you see tears swelling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children, and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky. When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When your wife and your mother are never given the respect a title, Mrs. When you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. Hit the lights for me. This was written by Martin Luther King Jr., letter from a Birmingham jail. And as they were writing to the lawmakers, they say, hey, look, guys, just wait. Things will work out. And his response is, perhaps people who don't witness this kind of suffering, you can say, wait. Perhaps a person who lives in Collegedale and not high crime, not high rape, not high drug abuse, we can say, oh, I can preach the gospel later. It's easy for us to say, wait, because we don't suffer. But when you experience these kind of things, the point to me applies even greater to preaching the three angels' messages. 
people who are not under the bondage or the issue of segregation because of the color of their skin. But this is, becomes a human problem. The devil has no respect of persons when it comes to destroying a soul. He doesn't care if you're a nobody or a somebody. He will destroy your soul. And for many of us, because we experience liberty in Jesus, we know what it's like to know that I can come to him and confess my sins and he actually has forgiven me. To know that I don't have to walk up innumerable amounts of stairs on my knees to make atonement for my sins. I don't need to maximize my physical suffering to know that God accepts me in the beloved. It's easy for us to say, wait. It's easy for us to say, wait. Excellence demands that we put all out of love to God and to our fellow men. The suffering of God is beyond our comprehension and the suffering of humanity. Why do we wait? You see, the fundamental issue of excellence is one of the most compelling ways to reach the world. You're going to be a Bible worker? Be excellent. You're going to study business? Study business to change the world. You're going to do nursing or whatever we're studying, medicine, pre-law. Remember, never tell yourself, wait, when it comes to revealing the character of God. Never tell yourself, wait, when it comes to ministering to humanity or ending his suffering. Don't allow yourself to say it. And the day that you or I say, yeah, I can wait, just remember. A woman just got raped in the 26 seconds we spent discussing. A person just died three times in the time we spent discussing whether I should go forward and preach the gospel or not to a Christless grief. And many more are being born into a world of that kind of suffering every three seconds. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. I want to make an appeal. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. I want to make an appeal. I've seen a lot of suffering in my life. And I've read about a lot of suffering. And many of us, we sit comfortably at Southern Adventist University. We're comfortable in College Dale. And I want to challenge you. There's a cause bigger than you and me. There's a need for the world, not for people to be excellent for their own glory, but for the glory of God. People who will rise up and serve humanity. And so my appeal to you is this. Number one, you want to say, Lord, I have not been excellent. <laughs> I have not been excellent. I want you to raise your hand. You say, Lord, help me to be excellent from this day forward. I have not been excellent. All right, you can put your hands down. But my second appeal is this. The best thing to put your all into is something that will last for eternity. Imagine the thankfulness of that South African woman who could have been raped but was not because you brought change. You decided to go preach the gospel. You decide to figure out policies to change South African government to protect those kind of women. That's why you go into politics. You want to say, Lord, help me by your grace to do something to end the suffering in your heart and in the hearts of so many of your children. I want you to stand. We're going to make a commitment. Everything that I do from this day forward, I know on Adventist campuses, you know, we make appeals. People are like, yeah, yeah, you hear 100 appeals. This is different. I'm asking us and myself, let's become 100 percenters. Let's say, Lord, I'm going to do something by your grace. Whatever I'm studying, whatever I'm involved in activities is going to be for the reducing of your suffering and the reducement of the suffering of humanity. If that's you, I want you to stand. And say, Lord, I'm going to do something. No longer go back to the standard quid pro quo Adventists. Come eat the rice, have potluck, all this other stuff. No change. God is trying to come. Jesus is trying to end the suffering of his children. And we sit here comfortably 
having seminars. Brethren, we are not doing well. God has a world to win. He has souls to save. If there's anyone else, I'm going to invite you to stand. You say, Lord, I'm going to do something for your cause. To end your suffering and the suffering of humanity. You must be excellent, not for your sake, but for the sake of those who need it. That's why we need to be excellent. That's why we need to be excellent. Let's pray. Why don't we kneel together? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your spirit was here to speak to us. We came thinking that it was a seminar. We may learn a few things. We may figure out how we can do our jobs better. But we have come realizing that the Spirit was speaking something so much deeper. That, Lord, it wasn't about the good grades and even necessarily doing our best as much as it is about the cause of God to save souls. Everything we do, Lord, ought to be for humanity and for God. Jesus gave everything to us. And we ask for your forgiveness, Lord, because for too long we've said we can wait. It can wait. But it's because we haven't seen the suffering. Guide us, Lord, this day. Challenge us from this day out to never settle for mediocrity. To never believe or allow ourselves or our friends or our loved ones to settle for average. But to say, no, if you love Jesus, you must give your very best. If you love Jesus, you must give your very best. May we as students challenge our professors. Give your very best. Not for my sake as a student, but because of Jesus. May we challenge the institutional leaders to give their very best. Not for Southern's reputation, but for the reputation of God. May we challenge our state leaders. May we challenge our family members. May we challenge our friends, our loved ones. You must be excellent. For Christ's sake, bless us to this end, Lord, and continue to guide us and encourage us as we follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.